Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week we're spouting off about how much space do you really need in that system of yours. Let's get into episode 54. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by Linode and Bitwarden. With me today are the fantastic co-hosts, Nate and Matt. What have you been up to this week? All good things, I think. You think? Well, I mean... So maybe not good things? Nothing bad. (laughs) (laughs) At least nothing you'd admit to on a show that's going out on the air, right? I was going to say, nothing he would (laughs) not admit to on (laughs) <laughs> and besides, I think uh, it would be more concerning if it was me, not Nate. That is very true. Yes, I'm sure there are definitely some things that you've been up to that you're not allowed to talk about. And I know Nate's thing to talk about is probably going to put me to sleep, but that's okay. Other people love it. You're doing some stuff with the Steam Deck. And is that trying to take it from running Arch? Or are you playing with the resources in order to make it better for retro gaming? What I'm actually doing specifically is I've been gathering different resources for like, how do I do this? How do I do that? And they're basically a series of bookmarks or links that I've stored. And so I thought that rather than just have this collection of links just on my tiddlywiki, my personal notebook... I thought I'd start putting some of this together as a resource to put on cubicleinate.com. I know there are tons of resources out there for Steam Deck, and so there's probably not a whole lot of reason to check out cubicleinate.com slash Steam Deck, but it's a quick resource for me anyway. In my table of contents, I have like, what are the Steam button shortcuts? Because I don't remember those. I know you can hold the Steam button, pop those up real quick, but it's nice to have them just right there up like on my laptop or whatever, and I can just quickly just do the different movements and whatnot. You know, things I didn't know when I first got the Steam Deck, I put some of that stuff in there immediately. Like, you know, I was searching around for how to get to desktop mode. And now that I have my Steam Deck, well, I don't need that now because it's very, very simple. But if someone like gets a Steam Deck and they look it up, I just want to have that stuff just available and ready in there. Now, probably most people just kind of laugh like that's a silly thing to put on there. But if you don't know, you don't know. Also, things like setting up the user password. So if you want to do enable secure shell so you can remotely get into it, well, how do you do that? Well, you first have to set up a user password. And so I put all these instructions just in one spot for me to reference. And if somebody decides that they want to dig into it and do stuff with it, then I have those things there. Also, like when I was searching, how do you turn on and off the immutable root file system lock? Well, you can read a lot of ways of doing that. And it isn't immediately clear when you do the searching, what is the preferred way? Well, the preferred way is sudo steamos dash read only disable. And then to enable, it's obviously the other way around. So just little things like that, like notes for me. I'm not necessarily going to remember how to do that one next time I want to do something like that. So I just have those notes readily and available for me. Also, if you want to get to the boot menu, that's on there. And then I have some links to like some performance tweaks we can do, uh, some particular accessories and also like Fortnite on the Steam Deck was something I wrote previously. So I just want to kind of have one spot where I can go to. And if there's like three or four of the people out there that also find it useful, awesome. But for me, I need a place where I can keep all my notes and access it whenever. And so that's what I've done. It makes sense to me to have all of that stuff easy to access, not only for you, but anybody else who wants to get to it. Nate, is the context in the disabling of the file system actually makes sense? Because don't you usually complain about weird syntax in Arch? Uh, Yeah, so Arch has very, very silly syntax, and I don't want to mess with it. But there are cases when you might need to dig in there. And 
this is just how you disable the read-only aspect of it. But as far as like adding and removing Arch packages, I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> we'll get them there eventually. One day we'll get them there eventually. I think so. There are some things that like I would prefer over using the Pac-Man package manager. I mean, things like toothpicks <laughs> like between my toenails, you know, that's probably oh more enjoyable goodness. than dealing with Pac-Man. There's your first edit. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Did I say <laughs> No, I'm just giving you crap. I was waiting for the vulgarity of how you really feel <laughs> Like I can understand that the syntax of Pac-Man is my least favorite of any package manager I have ever used, but I think you've gone just a step too far there with that one. <laughs> I actually, I will go one further. Before Flatpak updated a lot of its syntax, a lot of it was obtuse. Oh, Flatpak was also terrible, yeah. Before yeah. they updated it, yeah. To be totally fair... Like that was my biggest criticism of Flatpak for a long time because they tell you to do everything from the terminal, which whatever, but it's like you need to memorize this log of two, you know, URL and everything. I like, ooh, ooh, not a great user experience. No, it really wasn't. And I actually didn't do much with Flatpaks during that period of time, and I still really don't. I prefer pulling things directly from the repos on my system instead of running a flat back, a snap, anything like that. So I guess I forgot about it or didn't remember that just because it wasn't something that I was actively seeking out. Well, they make it a lot more seamless now because most distros for the flat pack stuff is if you download, like I know for elementary, they have what is it, a something sideload or whatever, where if you download the flat pack and it enables it in like the actual app centers kind of deal. So they've fixed a lot of issues with um, flat pack over the last, what, 18 months, Nate? I mean, that's really why I've seen a lot of uptake with since the steam deck and stuff the good things about the development on plasma is that they've worked on discover so much now that using Flatpak through discover almost makes it basically unnecessary to use Flatpak in the terminal and that's also fixed a lot of it as mm -hmm. well so maybe if they could fix arch like that as some kind of intermediary that can speak archies the packaging <laughs> system that would be handy honestly Garuda is about the closest one i've seen that does that with uh wendy what's the update command in Garuda? is it Garuda attack update and that's like the update. There's no like pseudo Pac-Man tech SYU, you know, update. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. There's something like that, but I always forget to use it. So I put in the standard one because that's what I used in Manjaro for forever. <laughs> and then it says, do you mean? And I'm like, yes, that's what I mean. Just You mean small <laughs> stuff like that, Nate? Basically any of that. Yeah. Or I could just use Zipper or DNF. That'd be way better. Well, Matt, it looks like, again, you've purchased more new hardware. I mean, is this ever going to stop? What did you purchase this time? That's like asking Ryan if he's ever going to stop buying new hardware. Every okay, I'm not every three months of like brand new, here's like a 4090 kind of stuff. I'm not that bad. I'm bad, but I'm not financially wise that bad. <laughs> so no, I picked up a PS5, the elusive PlayStation 5. Because, and solely because, I ended up selling my PS4 and some other stuff, mostly for expecting bills to be more than they were, so I had leftover money. The problem is, after I sold the PS4, and I had the leftover money from what I sold, it ended up being, well, okay, if I go buy a PS4, it's either buy it used, so there's that whole end of the console market or just kind of like used PCs. Never know what you're going to get. <laughs> Go to a refurb like a GameStop or something. Again, never know what you're going to get. <laughs> or spend $330 to buy a brand new one from Sony on a 10-year-old device. 
or I can spend the 550 I think that I spent on the one I can upgrade to. So I'm already halfway through the uh, the bankroll at that point. So I was like, well, I guess I'm buying the PS5. <laughs> and a lot of it's mostly for the backwards compatibility on the PS4 games. So I was able to actually get a really good deal on this. Uh, I spent, I think it was 600 after tax and everything else, which good deals relative given Sony's weird marketing with, we're raising the price for the first time instead of consoles going down, they went up. I got the disc version for about 600, but that came with two games, two physical like, controllers and it was the disc version of the ps5 so the two controllers go for about 70 a piece the two games go for about 70 a piece it kind of made up for the difference of like i had to drop you know an extra 240 dollars or whatever on top of what i had but on the same note it came with about 240 dollars worth of stuff so like however you want to look at that well and then you're upgraded to the point that it'll last you for a long time after this it's not that you really wanted to buy a new one at this point but since you did and that way you can still play your existing game this system is going to be usable for quite a while yeah it, it definitely is the uh, ps5 is a very large machine and as its form factor so I have a Series X that I've had for a while because I couldn't get a PS5. I have this next to my PS3 and I have it next to my Wii U. You could literally stack probably like eight of the Wii U consoles on top of each other to equal the height of the PS5. Wow. Whoa. Thing is beefy big. Obviously it's curvy and stuff, so it, it doesn't really fit in with like, you know, you can't lay it flat You can't to like a media style stacking that you would have done on like traditional console so that part's a little obnoxious so i got standing vertically right now but yeah uh overall uh been enjoying it. i've been playing uh all game i'll mention later the controllers are really interesting they're like these weird uh most controllers are like analog on off kind of like button press so the game i'm playing has when there's a resistive style thing happening on screen and it gives you the button prompt. It gives you kind of like that resistance in the trigger for like the left and right trigger buttons. The dual sense. Yeah, the dual sense stuff. So it's interesting. And the environmental sounds come through on the PS5 controller. Some of like the more stereo sounds that you would normally not just hear from the TV, but you also get like environmental sounds through the controller. So like you'll hear footsteps or just other small details that are actually really, really cool. The PS5 controller's interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Battery life could be a heck of a lot better. I will say that. And the controllers? Yes. Uh, I will say, and because you have one, Nate, I will make the... Atari VCS has a better battery life as far as the controller, the modern controller. But also not that feedback, though. I mean, those servos that, that give you like resistance and whatnot, mm -hmm. that has an energy toll. So I kind of understand it. Oh, I'm not saying I don't understand it. I'm just saying like from a like use case situation, if you're u expecting like super long battery life, don't. <laughs> I got you. You sent me the picture of it, mm -hmm. and it looks huge. I mean, just in the picture, I thought the Wii U was, you know, a rather sizable console, or even the PS3. This makes the PS3 look like a... Small. I don't want to say tiny, but it definitely dwarfs it. From a height perspective, you're probably adding, I would say, at least another quarter of a PS3 on top of the regular, like, fat boy PS3 to equal the mm -hmm. height of the PS5. It's a beefy big console. Anyway, now that we've put Wendy to sleep talking about Steam Decking gaming and everything else, because, you know, we know how much she loves that. You awake, Wendy? Mm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Visit linode.com slash tux and see why over a million developers trust Linode for their infrastructure. 
From their award-winning support to ease of use and setup, it is clear why developers and businesses have been trusting Linode for their projects, both big and small, since 2003. Don't worry if you're just getting started. That 24-hour, 7 days a week, 365 days a year support is offered to every level of user. They also offer industry best price to performance value for all compute instances, including shared, dedicated, high memory, and GPUs. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible, allowing you to focus on your customers, not your infrastructure. Visit linode.com tux, create a free account, and you'll get a $100 credit. Say you're in a hurry, don't worry about it. You can build everything yourself or use the Linode one-click apps to deploy everything from Plesk, WordPress, to Valheim and Minecraft servers. Make sure you visit Linode slash Tux to get started for free and snag that $100 credit while you're at it. As I've been working on the show this week, I started looking at how much space do I have left. And it is amazing how much total little space I have. Yes, from the time I started editing Deal and Extend, when we were Deal and Extend, and every single episode I've edited of Linux Out Loud, all of those files have been saved. And uh, yeah, they are completely adding up. Plus pictures and now multiple zip files of our Pybricks folders. So how much space do we actually need? I know I'm running out. I need to update all of my space, but what's right for me? How are you guys doing on space? Do you need more? And what's right for you? Well, I can't speak for Matt, but you can never have too much free space. And it's also one of my favorite games from the 90s. That's a total side tangent. <laughs> Never played it? Because the name Descent is in it. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Descent Free Space. Great game. Great game. Anytime I hear Free Space, I always go back to that no matter what. No, I can be in a conversation, a serious conversation about Free Space. For, you know, Anything people else. It doesn't matter what. <laughs> yeah, and I think about flying the Apollo fighter against somebody, whatever, whoever the bad guys were in that. But yeah. So do you throw files away? Because I can't throw files away. So now I'm sitting in a position that I've worked on these files and some of them I wouldn't throw away in general because they're pictures of my kids, other images. Those two take up a lot of room, but then I have these other things that I don't necessarily need to save, but I don't want to get rid of them. I wouldn't say that my backup system is the best because I only have one drive that's spinning rust that I'm calling my backup. Something else would be better, especially with a lot more space, having some redundancy in it would be awesome. But I know it's time to upgrade drives in general. Even my working media drive, I'm constantly having to pull files off of it at this point in order to throw them on the backup drive so I continue actively working on projects. So me personally, I have a few ways I take care of the uh, bloat of uh, or the, the hoarding of data, as it were. So part of it is when I do like distro testing or application testing or whatever, a lot of times I create a bunch of stuff, content for like cubiclenate.com or whatever, and I don't end up keeping all the different screenshots. And so what'll happen is I will actually just eliminate the ones that I don't think I need. When it comes to like pictures of kids and family and stuff like that, aside from very, very select few, I don't get rid of any of those either. I probably don't make 
as much of that like memory type stuff as, as maybe you do. Since I don't store the files raw, they're, they're stored as JPEGs because that's good enough for my simpleton brain to handle. And then as far as videos and such are concerned, I keep a lot of that. But like when I make content for like, you know, any of my cubicle Nate nonsense, I don't keep all those videos anymore. I, I used to keep a lot of it, but then it's like, I haven't indexed the old stuff very well. So I don't really even know, like if it's, if it's really old, I'm, I'm not even sure I would know what to look for if I'm thinking of something or that I even remember to look for it. So a lot of that stuff I've trimmed away also, except for like the final videos. I've kept all the final videos that I've published or even things I've just kept for myself. I do keep archives of things. Any content I create for like tutoring kids or anything like that, even if I improve it from like previous years, I'll generally keep the old stuff unless it's just like a mild, a minor update. But if, I, if it's like a major change, I'll archive the old stuff. And so it's not been a problem. So like as far as like data that I actively keep and synchronize around, I'm still below about 800 or so gigabytes of, of data. So it's not too bad. Things like pictures and videos or other media content, I push to my server, which has, you know, a RAID 10, array, six drives. I'm actually about, oh, I don't know. I've put a lot of pressure on it. I need to upgrade the drives at this point. But a lot of that stuff, yeah, I don't know. I, I, haven't, I probably need to do some house cleaning there. But I, I still have enough open space right now that it's not an issue yet. I think you just need to teach me how to throw files away. Because <laughs> I can't. I just can't bring myself to do it. No, I'm in kind of in the same boat. My problem is like, so just from the drives that I have that are not like system drives, like just storage devices, I think I have 16 terabytes, give or take. Oh, wow. All of those in some way, shape or form are double data though. So I have a, the main drive and then I have the backup of that drive. So for me, one of them is my media drive, which is about four terabytes, give or take. Like it's that fluctuates depending on what I keep and what I decide to get rid of. Wendy, it's actually really easy to get rid of stuff. I'm just saying. <laughs> See, there's been a few times where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and throw away those files. And then there was one point where I did pull a few things from past shows, mainly to rib you. I mean, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Power so editing. then it makes it even harder to get rid of them. And I know at some point nobody's going to ask for them. This isn't going to be one of those shows they are like, way back in history, we need <laughs> copies of Linux out loud. Oh, guess what? I've got them. Or my kids or grandkids are like, guess what? We've got them. No, they're actually going to trash all of that stuff. But I have a hard time getting rid of things in general. I'm a bit more of a pack rat. I've got boxes of cables under my desk that I haven't actually gotten through when we were doing the spare room cleanup, mainly because things have been crazy and that project got set aside. Regardless, getting rid of stuff for me is very difficult. So I'm in a position where I don't necessarily need to keep everything that I've got, but in order to not throw stuff away, I need larger drives. <laughs> It sounds like somebody's trying to find justification in getting the larger drives either way. I'm just saying. Hmm, maybe. <laughs> so for as much flack as somebody likes to give me about trying to find justification on things, I'm just saying. Turnabout is fair play on this particular situation. <laughs> now, I'm going to go ahead and say, Wendy, it's probably good for you to get new drives anyway, just in general. And I don't, I don't know how you have your drives configured, if they're in a RAID or not. But if nothing else... Having new drives to put them on is good for your data integrity anyway. One, I mean, I don't know what, yeah. what file system you're using, but if you're not using 
a more modern file system, you can't have bit rot over time with your data. So unless it's a self-maintaining. Yes. And I have experienced that before. So I'm not using a RAID system. Right now I am using ButterFS as my file system on Garuda. And I do want to protect the data in general. So I love the idea of having a RAID system. That's awesome that you have it. It's probably one of the best ways to keep those precious files that you don't want removed. And then you're still on the same train of thought of how much do I need to have? I guess in some of those RAID systems and some of those hot swappable solutions, you can always add more. You get an extra level of protection in that because there's a bit of redundancy there. Mm -hmm. Whereas my current system, there is no redundancy and I would just be out of luck. Like it's all gone. Having been bit in the butt before with that Wendy and losing everything and you're just like, ah, yeah, up the river without a paddle kind of situation. Right. It definitely... While I don't have the raid set up in that level of redundancy that Nate's doing, I at least have all my data double backed up and stuff because of having been yeah. bit before. So I totally get, but I also understand where you're coming from because it's like, I want to keep all the things because I might need them. As a person who collects things, I can't really rag too much about collecting data too much, <laughs> at least in, in the case of like what you're talking about, not like Google or Microsoft creepy collecting data style. Uh, right. Well, if you creepy collect on yourself, that's not a big deal. Well, I guess. <laughs> oh, so many directions I can go with that. None of them appropriate. Um, right. So I, I definitely get where you're coming come from on both angles with that particular aspect of not wanting to get rid of things, but also looking at it like, well, I'm going to kind of get bit if I don't. Yeah. It's a hard thing sometimes to figure out how much you actually need because I'm not going to lie, even at 16 terabytes for what I have, I don't have enough. So I ended up buying like this cheap $30 like external 2.5, 3.5 adapter that I can just drop drives that are 2.5 or 3.5s in and out. Nice. And they show up as an external hard drive. And it works with like the 2.5 uh, SSDs and all that stuff. So that has saved me a lot because while it's spread out over a bunch of different drives, it's also nice to have. But on the flip side, I had to consolidate all those drives down. <laughs> originally so but it does solve like nate what you mentioned the kind of like the bit rot problem because mm -hmm. it at least if you dropping them in in and out occasionally and still getting that data flowing through it that rot is a little bit less and yeah. also having a good file system tends to help and most of mine i think are ext4 if i remember correctly yeah, i don't know what kind of protections ext4 has on bit rot i just don't know i do know that butterfest does have a lot of stuff baked into it i have no idea on, on any others I'm just saying, for me, those were just the ones that it got formatted to. And I mean, it can't be any worse than, you know, NTFS, which, you know, corrupts itself by itself. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that one's definitely a monster. Without any without help. Without a doubt. <laughs> Nate, how big is your RAID system? I have six drives, six two terabyte drives, marketing two terabyte. So it ends up being 5.5 terabytes of RAID 10 storage. You know, they lie to you. They're not quite two terabytes. Yeah, yeah, they're never as big as they say they are. No. Well, of course, because they don't multiply it by the 1024, you know, like they're supposed to. It's a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of a 1024 bytes in a kilobyte, they're doing 1000 bytes. They're trimming off that little end there, which is cheating as far as I'm concerned. Very much so. Yes. Yeah, so there's six drives and they're all spinning rust. And uh, at last check, which was about a month ago, they are all still passing their health check, 
according to the smart daemon. It is on the uh, on the roadmap. I have some other like servery type things that I would like to build for out here in cubicle labs so that I have an offsite backup from my home. I know it's only like a hundred and some odd feet away, but you know, if but. something happens to one building, it's not necessarily going to happen to the other building unless it's a major, major, like once in a thousand year type event, in which case I'm probably not going to be around for it anyway and it won't matter. Anyway, I do want to have like an offsite backup as well. So I'm, I'm looking at my options right now. I did get some stuff from Bill. I haven't quite, um, I don't want to let him know that I'm a little bit of a dummy and I haven't quite <laughs> figured it all out yet. But I'm kind of a dummy and haven't quite figured it all out yet. That I do need to put some time and effort toward. It's on the roadmap. It really is. So, Nate, out of curiosity, because I do not actually have like a NAS setup, I'm assuming yours is a self-baked solution, a current server setup. Yeah, my current server is a, it's an OpenSUSE Tumbleweed machine. It's running on an AM3-based system. Yeah, shock, right? <laughs> and I update it about once every six weeks or so, a month to six weeks, depending and it also, when I buy some DVDs or Blu-rays, I rip them on that and rip it right, right into my media server as well. So it acts as a media server nice. and my backup server does all these things and just sits on my uh, server rack in, in my basement. Out of curiosity, do you have any experience with like QNAP or TrueNAS or any of those? Uh, not yet, but they're probably simpler than what I've done, I'm guessing. <laughs> the way I back data up right now is there's, there's two ways. One is all my active data that's backed up. So we talked previously about how I have I keep a digital filing cabinet. So all that stuff yep. is backed up on my server as well as on my C64 imposter, my laptops that I actively use. So all that data is being backed up. So I could lose any one machine and still maintain my data as well as my school stuff, like, like my stuff for, you know, for my home education and, and everything else, my tutor kids. So that's all backed up actively. And then I have stuff that isn't like, I would call it my archive backup. And that's all on the server it's nothing more than a separate folder called archive. And so when I want to move things out of like my active pool, I guess we'll call it for lack of a better term, that's actively backed up between machines, I'll move it into the archive and that's just on the raid. And then periodically, and I actually haven't done it in a while, so don't tell anybody this either, I pull <laughs> backups off of that. Now the plan is to build my offsite backup that all it would do is just mirror everything on that server, all the files, the backup archive, as well as the active data stuff and archive it back here. So I have, I have two locations where it's backed up to. You know, some people will say, unless if you have like a backup that you disconnect, you don't really have a backup probably right yeah. i don't know i should have another backup like a an offline backup th setup as well just in case but um i don't yeah and neither do i our sync thing for our active coding files that's kind of like your current use case backup yes but that right now is really only for the code that we're writing and it's i don't want to be left in a position where a machine goes down and then we have no way to access the team's code and get it working again, get it using again. But I need to have something like that for any of my other working files. And then an archive backup, kind of like what you have for the existing stuff. I know there for a while, just prices of drives in general had gone through the roof and I haven't checked them lately to see if that's still an issue what a basic setup like that would run you to have a decent amount of space to have a raid style backup have a little bit of redundancy there that's probably step number one right is at least have a raid backup and then you can build from there and how much you need really depends on how much data you have. So I currently have a game drive. I have what's called my backup drive. So it's got a bunch of images on it. It's got all of the backups of 
podcast stuff and videos, all kinds of things on there. And then I have another drive that's not actively being used. Like it does have video assets on it, mainly special effects and that kinds of thing. So the drive is just sitting there like it's almost full. I can't do anything else with it. But if I could remove that somewhere else, still have access to it when I do get to the point that I want to use those assets, they're there and not have to re-download them, especially with my internet speeds, that's not necessarily a possibility and not have that all built into my tower because right now all of those drives are directly in my tower. So for me, I think a minimum of probably 12 terabytes is what I would need to start with. And what does that cost look like? What does that setup look like? I don't know. I need to do some more diving into it. But somebody who is just trying to keep maybe like you, some JPEGs that need to be backed up, some documents, none of that really takes up a whole lot of space. That six terabytes is plenty sufficient and gives you the room you need to make it grow. At some point, everybody's going to run out of space. At some point, you are going to need to add to that. And so thinking ahead with your solutions is important because I've done multiple times where, okay, I've got a new spinning rest and I need to take all of the stuff that's on the old spinning rest and transfer it to the new one. And that takes me a couple of days to do manually because if the folder's too big at the time that I'm trying to move it, things freak out and they're like, oh, we can't do that anymore. So you need to do it increments at a time. And that's not sustainable either. As my data grows, I need to be able to do that more efficiently. It would be better if I had a system that I could expand, put another drive in when it's reached a point that you need more data. And how long is it going to take you to reach that maximum amount of data inside of whatever solution you come up with? If you know that this current solution is probably going to only last you a couple of years before you need to expand again. Determining which solution you're going with is probably going to be a little bit different than, okay, based on how much data I add per year, this is probably going to last me five years, 10 years, whatnot. Some of that definitely makes a difference. And there's a lot of other factors too. I mean, you want to do SSDs or spinning rust. Some people even say that spinning rust will likely last longer than SSDs for various reasons. I don't know what to believe there. I've read both ways. You know, not putting too much pressure as far as how full your file system is as well is something else to keep in mind. I don't really know how long will something last as far as like your usage is going to determine a lot of that really. And you know, like, I mean, you're obviously creating a lot more content than I am with your pictures. So that's going to also have another effect. And, and you might even look at maybe even some offline backups, things to pull off. I kind of wish it was more uh, reasonable in price, but I think tape backup or like long-term archive would be really nice. I'm probably the only one that would say what that. What backup? Tape backup. It does last a really long time. Yeah, it, it does. It does have a history of working for years, being able to retain the data for years. So, uh, so Wendy, to answer your how much is it going to cost, if you're just going with 12 terabytes, as an example, anyway, you can mm -hmm. have one drive at 12 terabytes that's going to cost you about $199. Or you can get, generically, the cheaper way I've seen is get three, four terabyte drives and fill them up that way. 
And those cost about yeah. $60 a whack, give or take. Well, and I'd rather do it in a RAID system where it was being redundant in the data mm-hmm. on that RAID system. So if one of those drives goes down, you're not losing all of the data on the drives would be preferred. So I would probably go the route of multiple drives in order to build up that space instead of just one drive again like i have right now which i know isn't the best way of doing it it's all spinning rust right now as far as what i'm looking at right do keep that in mind but it's about the same cost relative to storage space for um one or multiple drives and ssds are fantastic because they have that faster read write speed so that's why all of my working stuff that i'm doing is on an SSD, but my backup doesn't need to be on an SSD. It doesn't need to have that super fast read-write speed as I'm doing things because it's the backup. I'm not constantly accessing it. If I want to access it, it needs to be there, but it's not like it's this constant reading-writing situation. The answer of how much space you need for backup or for active data transfer, I think it really comes down to how much data you're creating. And I think you probably need to get some sort of a metric on how quickly am I filling up the space that I have. If I have a lot of external drives, what is it going to take to get all those drives actively backed up and synced on on some kind of a RAID array or whatever? Probably figuring out what it is that you need to do to be successful in safely keeping your data. And then I think from there, you know, crafting a solution that, that is cost effective. I'm not opposed to spinning rust for backups because I think they have a proven reliability and a track record on how, how long they last. They are a consumable, so it's something that you're going to have to replace eventually, but that doesn't that's every right. everything that's storage. It's just gonna be a matter of mostly like determining that number, figuring out what your budget is, and then going that route. But even if you have a backup solution that isn't perfect, that at least has some redundancy to it, you're still gonna be better off than not doing anything at all. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Make the smart move like many from the community and have a go at bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. If you're like me though, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition, especially since the premium edition starts at only $10 a year. And for that $10 premium account, you'll get things like one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F and Duo, Vault Health Reports, and so much more. Also, you'll get priority customer support, huh? Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Nate, this is a Linux Out Loud. We talk about all things Linux and Mac started from some of the same roots. So you've got to love Apple, right? Oh man, I think it's great. Uh, and by great, I mean, I think it, actually, I think it sucks. Uh, and that's probably the strongest <laughs> I'll ever say about any area of technology. I'm just gonna give you some examples. So one specific example that I'm dealing with, my oldest brings to me an iPhone 6 he hasn't used in a while. And he goes to turn it on and it says it's been, it's locked for 51 years and can't unlock. And I don't know how to unlock it because it's not, you can't do anything with it. So I went on to Twitter and I asked, Hey, how do I fix this? Because I figured there's a lot of smart people out there. You can do a little, put the little uh, hashtag thing in front of it and you know, it'll track some flies from somewhere. 
And sure enough, I said, you know, you need to use the backup and hook it into iTunes. And then you, there's a little like dance you do to get it to go in recovery mode. And then you can actually have iTunes fix it. So I, uh, you, that requires a Mac or PC. I don't have a Mac or a PC, but I do have Windows in a virtual machine. Well, that doesn't work. So it won't go into the recovery mode. So I can't really do anything there. So I started doing some other digging, see if there are any other options out there. And then I went down this rabbit hole first with iPhones and they have like, they're chronically have these bad designs, everything from the bending flaw that exists. And I even watched some YouTubers that, that some old YouTube videos. Uh, I'm actually not that old, really, I'm like three or four years old, maybe five. It was four. It bends, but it doesn't destroy the phone. And then I find out, actually, there's a chronic issue with iPhones. The main boards in them can't handle the constant board deflection from being bent. It may not actually fracture or the screen or anything like that, but the, the actual circuit boards with the components can't handle it. And so it's still an issue where they break down because of this, this deflection and requires you know major rework. I watched some other YouTubers and how they fixed these issues. And I absolutely should not have been watching this because it was wait, really wasting my time and I should have gone to bed, but you know there we go. And then it sent me down some further Apple craziness where apparently MacBook Pros ones are just a few years old even. They have soldered on SSD storage, right? They're NVMe or something. I don't know what they are exactly, but they're soldered on storage right on the board. Well, the control chip that manages the power will shoot up to seven volts, and it's supposed to be at two, kills your storage, your onboard storage. So you definitely have to have backups if you're running any kind of a MacBook, apparently. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah, cool. this is a, a continuing chronic issue. There's a high number of people that have this high percentage. Even, even if it's like 0.1% of the MacBooks out there, that's still many a thousands of MacBooks that are doing this. At this time, Apple doesn't provide any extended warranty on this manufacturing defect. So all this said, I need to either find a Windows machine or something to unlock this. But like now, I really discourage now, like if my kids want an Apple device, I don't think I could in good conscience buy into something that is so poorly designed from their their mobiles to the laptops. I mean, there's not really, I don't see a good reason to buy from Apple at this point. And I mean, there's other reasons too not to buy from them. And I don't want to get into that because Ryan and I would agree with this as far as some of their other business practices. But uh, but yeah, so anyway, I guess it's just, there's all these problems and they're a, a multi-billion dollar company. It's not to get on a pedestal or shame anybody if you buy Apple, but my experience in trying to use Apple products when I mostly use Linux, it sucks and it's really bad. And I it's not for me, but hey, if it works for you, I guess that's great. But anyway, so I'll figure this out. I'll borrow somebody's computer or something like that. It's just a toy. I want them to just be able to, so the kid can play whatever games he has on there, or even me for that matter. It's just such a pain in the butt to have to deal with the technology. You know, I did the, uh, what, month of Mac. Yeah. As a Linux user, Windows user at the time too, because I switched everything to Mac, like tablet, phone. You had an iPhone, Apple laptop. Yeah, you went all in. I went all in on it and I get the vertical integration like and the the selling point of that some of the decisions apple makes if you're outside of that particular vertical integration and you do things that aren't part of it it makes it really Mm -hmm. hard to be in that ecosystem and i'm one like nate is very much outside of that ecosystem for the most part so it makes it really obnoxious to do certain things downloading certain third-party apps that are unsigned or unverified and now apple's made it better with how they do it because before you used to have to at newsflash you do have to use the command line on a mac despite what they tell you <laughs> um before in order to enable like outside of the store app store stuff you had to go to the command line and enable a pseudo type permission to actually get it so in the gui 
that when you downloaded like a DMG, which is the max version of an installer, it would actually let you do it and not block the install. So they touted it as a security feature. I touted it as an annoyance. Right. Now when you do that and you click on a DMG, it tells you to go in, unlock it. And so they fixed that. But like there's things in there that just boggle my mind as a like a use case user that if you seriously think I'm going to find everything in your store, you're wrong. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, so that said, yeah, I got a little thing I need to figure out. It's not a high priority issue, but it's something I do want to take care of at some point in time. Just so I don't have my kids asking, hey, did you fix the phone yet? I'm like, well, I'm going to fix it with a hammer. I can't say that. <laughs> well, you can. You just did. No, I didn't say it. Not to them. And they're not going to listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, you tend to have a game that you're going to enable people with, but it looks like you're targeting multiple platforms with this enablement. This enablement is two-pronged, Nate. Uh, so... The PS4, PS5 uh, recommendation is Horizon Forbidden West, which is the sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. It's a typical kind of formulaic Sony first party game. Open world, lots of, you know, go here, go there, kind of just typical open worldy stuff. But I like the environment, the the overall kind of man-machine nature that the game kind of goes for and vibe, which is the interesting part for it. Unfortunately, it's only on PS4 and PS5. So I'm recommending the first game, which is Horizon Zero Dawn, which you can get on Steam and GOG. <laughs> From what it sounds like, this Horizon Forbidden West will probably more than likely be out on PC probably about a year after it was originally launched on the PS4 and the PS5. That seems to kind of be the pattern Sony's going with for the most part. So kind of like that year console exclusivity kind of after a mm -hmm. game fades out of most people's majority of thinking when they relaunch a game on a different platform. Like, oh, kind of deal. Fun games. Bit pricey. Not going to lie. I got the PS5 version for about half price because I scrounge across the local game shops around here where I live and they had a Sony deal where it was literally half off the $70 price tag of this game that came out. Not that long ago. So I got it for 35 Pricey game, depending on what, what you're looking at. Horizon Zero Dawn goes on sale quite frequently on PC. So, and there are other areas and places you can find it probably for much cheaper. Check like Fanatical or Humble Bundle if you're on those more reputable sites. I'll put it that way. Fun third person archery based kind of games with like cybernetic dinosaurs and all that kind of stuff the original is quite a large download size of course the one you've linked is the complete edition base price is right around 50 dollars with a 73 gig download Woo! i didn't say it was a small game artistically <laughs> it looks like there's a lot of ones and zeros that went into uh into that so i, I understand why this is such a large game and it looks cool i'm not really sure like uh it's got to be one of those really immersive games, I'm thinking. It has to be. Like when you really get into the story and, and the action and everything else. I don't know that it's necessarily my style of game. A little dystopian. It's, it's, I know it's too new. You're going to say that. It's, that's the trope. It's the trope, but it's true. Yeah, tropes don't mean not true. That's the story. Anyway, but it definitely looks like a, a fun game to play, though. As far as like the gameplay itself goes, is it like an action type of game or is it more like point and click because it's an action game you actually have to know how to twiddle your fingers on the controller <laughs> yes you do okay most of the stuff is pretty i will say from my interface perspective it's actually pretty a lot of radial menus and stuff as an example you have different like archery arrows and stuff that you can use as your character all of that's done from within the radial menu and the menu slow when you have those open it slows down time so it's more of like a 
almost a turn-based kind of style when you're figuring out what you want to use and that kind of stuff. So there's like an active weight system, essentially. So it makes it a little bit easier to manage and like crafting like new ammo for your bow is literally open the radio menu and select the ammo and hold down X in like two seconds. It's stuff like that that make it a very streamlined experience, I will say that. So not as involved as like Minecraft where you got to go find this material and that material and then you craft it after you build this thing, but you can't build this thing until you find this material and that material and then build the thing so you can make the thing that you need. (laughs) Um, It doesn't impede any storyline progress. It will make things harder, uh, but you can buy most of the stuff from most of the merchants in the game anyway so gotcha it depends like you can go and do on a collecting spray if you want or you can just buy all the stuff from merchants and go that route if you want to so who made the giant robots hmm? who made the giant robots in the game because obviously you're fighting giant robots that's part of the story okay so don't ruin it what you're saying you're supposed to play exactly. and find out oh okay <laughs> so while i'm giving out game recommendations this is going to be a three for one episode apparently wendy you seem to have a game that you actually played for once so last week i was telling you about a game that i bought and hadn't played yet and i did get a chance to play it over this last week it's called tandem a tale of shadows and this is without a doubt a pure puzzle game There is a little bit of a story to it, though it's coming in very, very tiny chunks. There are some different quote-unquote secrets you can find. You are playing as two different characters inside the game. One is a little girl and the other is a living teddy bear. And the Tale of Shadows really kind of sums it up as the character who is the girl, you need to move your light into different positions because your teddy bear can only walk across the shadows and the teddy bear can't move if they themselves are in shadow. The puzzles have been a whole lot of fun and I would say it's somewhat of a horror puzzle game. It's not super, super scary. There are some spiders in the first level that hmm, had a whole lot of fun eating me. So there's that. You got to be careful about the spiders and where they're positioned. Right now, I'm on, I guess you would say, level two of the game. And there hasn't been anybody attacking me until just recently. And now it's kind of these inky octopus that you are currently having to watch out for. I enjoy it. I love a game like this. There is one that I played like this. It's very, very similar And I will have to look up the name of it. But instead of kind of a horror scenes, it was three different characters in this snow scene. And you had to move them all into the right position in order to pass it. I love the fact that it still feels very casual. Yes, if you leave in the middle of a puzzle, you will have to start that puzzle over again. But earlier today, I picked it up for just a little bit. I played through one of the levels and then went about my other stuff. It's not one where you feel like you have to sit and play it for 20, 30 minutes or whatever. Jump in, solve a puzzle, work through it, and then leave. If you do have to leave in the middle of the puzzle and start again, you kind of have a head start the next time of where certain characters need to go and what needs to happen I've really enjoyed it. Not a very expensive game. It is fairly new as far as timeline goes. And if you enjoy solving some casual puzzles, I would say this one is fantastic. Don't get it for the story, even though it says there's a story to it. 
because most of the time you're just solving individual puzzles. Personally, I like a good puzzle game. I think they're fun. If I'm perfectly honest with you, I've not actually completed a lot of the puzzle games. I'll get stuck and then I'll forget about it because I get sidetracked and busy. <laughs> but I like the art style of this game. It looks fun to play. The top-down, I don't want to say Zelda-ish, but like what would remind me of like the Zelda style of game where you're going through your, your levels, whatever. Because it's 3D, it, it looks so cool. It really does. It's like those old adventure games, but with a, mm -hmm. with a more modern twist on it. And I, I think that that's really cool. Classic aesthetic. I'm not surprised that you would like that, Nate. Nor should you be. I got a type, <laughs> and it's an old type. Because you're type of old? So you're top down just when you're playing as the little girl and then it's almost not necessarily a side scroller, but you have the side view when you're playing as a teddy bear because physics, of course, don't matter in this game at all. They don't really explain how the teddy bear ends up on the side of the wall, but there is kind of this funky action in which he gets placed there. I don't know. Like I said, don't go to this game for the story. Just go to it because you enjoy solving puzzles and you'd like to just run through a bunch. I'm trying to find the one that I'd played before. I know I'd mentioned it on an earlier show and it's actually been quite a while since I'd mentioned that. I know it's somewhere here in this list of games that I've played before and yeah, I can't find it at all. You're not very likely to get stuck. There are some of the puzzle games where it's really easy to get stuck. Candle is one of them. There are places where I know I ended up quite frustrated with that one. How do I solve this? And it's because there's so much potential backtracking or different places of the map that you need to go in. Tandem is not one of those. Yes, there are some places where they might take a little bit longer to figure out where you need to go, but there isn't any backtracking to other levels in order to get a specific object that you need to do. It's really more of a confined puzzle. I would say take something like Sudoku or something like that where you have one confined puzzle that you're solving. It's more like that with two different characters that you're trying to get aligned into the right spot to get the right button pushed in order to get your key, collect your gem, and whatnot. So I'm going to throw out another recommendation that kind of falls into this Ooh, style of game. A forfer today on the games. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a game on Steam called Another Sight where... Kind of like what you're doing. You have two characters that you use in tandem. Uh, not in tandem necessarily, but as you go through the game, it requires cooperation from both characters. But in your case, Wendy, you'll like it because that second character is a cat. Ooh, I do like it. I do like it right <laughs> off the bat. I am a fan of the kitty kitties. And it's a, like what you mentioned, that kind of 2.5D side scroller as far as like uh -huh. the game and whatnot. Uh, I believe it goes for about 20 bucks, but you can usually find it on sale elsewhere for pretty cheap. Oh, awesome. I will definitely be checking that out. Did you put a link someplace? It's going to be in the show notes. I got to get the link. <laughs> and now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit the discourse form, drop us a line under this video or the contact by visiting tuxdigital.com slash contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links in the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and more at TuxDigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting Tux Digital merch store, 
grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I paused my game to be here shirt or join Team Wendy with some Sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, conversations somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. Yeah.